is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. The St. Paul Almanac book was created in 2005 and has since been released annually. The goal is to bring together the diverse community of St. Paul through literary arts. The Almanac is a meeting place for sharing stories and artwork of our community. This year, the St. Paul Almanac released their 11th volume, On a Collected Path. As part of a reading festival, authors have gathered at various venues throughout St. Paul to read their fabulous work. On Saturday, June 17th, Storymobile was at Polly's Coffee Cove to hear authors read their work from St. Paul Almanac on a Collected Path, Volume 11. All right, first up we have Anita Diwale. Anita lives in St. Paul with her husband and two sons. She blogs at firstteacher.wordpress.com, first1stteacher.wordpress.com. Please welcome Anita. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. My um, piece is on page 174, and it's called A Full Pantry. In early February, we broke open the seal on our last pint of mulberry jam. It took us back to the summer days when the mulberry tree on the Elmhurst Cemetery fence line was laden with ripe fruit. I wish we could pick mulberries now, one son said. We recalled how the tree had provided a feast for the birds, but the birds were not keeping up. Plenty of mulberries were dropping to the ground, only to be trampled or driven upon. So I called up the cemetery manager and asked for permission to pick the berries, promising him some mulberry cobbler in return. He was surprised when we actually delivered the warm dessert, fresh out of the oven. It's best the first day, I told him. He responded by saying we should help ourselves to more mulberries if we like. So during July, we picked enough for two small batches of mulberry jam, three cobblers, and over a month's worth of smoothies. Plenty of the berries also went straight into the boys' mouths, staining their lips a deep purple. One time when we were picking, my younger son climbed the chain-link fence to reach some berries that were higher in the tree. When his older brother attempted the same thing, he scratched his knee. I sent the crying boy and his younger brother home together. Daddy was there to wash the wound and wipe away the tears. My husband had not joined us because he's not to one, one to stand by the side of the road and pick fruit off a tree that doesn't belong to us. But foraging has grown in popularity, becoming a trendy thing to do, even in urban areas. Foraging finds friends within the slow food movement, which espouses eating more foods grown locally. I'm drawn to it because I enjoy turning something with seemingly little value, such as fruit falling off a tree, into something people would actually want. This is second nature to those who lived through the Depression, like my grandmothers. Foraging is one way to follow in their footsteps, if only a little. I didn't stop with the mulberries. Last year I also received cucumbers, extra-large zucchini, and tomatoes, both red and green from gardeners who had more produce than they could use. I was happy to take them off their hands and preserve them. By the end of the growing season, those six jars of mulberry jam were joined by 38 other jars, salsa, relish, and other goodies, both sweet and sour, packed at the peak of freshness. What a sense of satisfaction came from looking over the rows of jars in the pantry, and what satisfaction came from sharing them, 
in the months that followed. When it was time to give a gift, I often raided my pantry. I got the most compliments on the apple butter and the green tomato salsa. Now, as winter draws to a close, our, pant close, our pantry is rather sparse looking. But with a new growing season on the horizon, I'm expecting more opportunities for eating, preserving, and share sharing locally grown food. Okay, next up we have Chua Yang. Chua lives in St. Paul. Please welcome Chua. So, uh, let's see, my poem is pretty short. It can be found on page uh, 197. And um, it, it's, it's many things to me, but it's also, the, a large part of it is uh, about my youth growing up uh, in Minnesota and trying to figure out what it means to be American. Um, uh, the time is, uh, uh, takes place in the 1980s. And the place is uh, McDonough Homes, which is about just a mile from here, government housing. And uh, let's see. I think what was confusing for me uh, as a kid is just there's just a, when you come here as an immigrant, there's just a cacophony of like voices telling you what it means to be American, um, some demanding you. Um, so it took me a long time to, um, be American, I guess. Uh, the first part of my poem is an epigraph by a uh, Native American writer, uh, uh, Professor Irvin Morris. There the locusts led them into the third world, which was white, crooked, uh, through a crooked opening. Again, scouts were sent out, and again, they found nothing. But in time, they discovered that this world was inhabited by grasshoppers. Irvin Morris. Summer stretched two steel beams out into a vertical horizon. My head laid on one, the color of old tobacco, listening. Warmed by the sun, it soothed my ear like a Hmong mother's ribcage, how it should. I waited to hear a heartbeat the one that would tell me everything I needed to know. But there's a loud shimmering of translucent wings. I departed from the tracks, heavier with taconite pellets for my slingshot. Through tall grass and scattered trash, I found the path back to McDonough. Ahead of me, flying grasshoppers kept pace. Next up, we have Christopher David Lear. Christopher David Lear is a writer, storyteller, and Zen clown. Anxious by birth and mirthful by practice, Christopher writes and performs to show folks uh, to show folks the joy in life and convince them and himself that no trouble exists that cannot be overcome with a sufficient amount of imagination. Please welcome Christopher. Thank you. Thank you to David and Cracked Walnut for putting this together. A round of applause for them. I went to college in St. Paul at McAllister College. And this is about my time there. And a building that is no longer there. The building seems so permanent and so stable, but they change and disappear just like everything else. So this is called The Destruction of Dayton Hall. On page 64. I don't know exactly who Dayton Hall was named for 
a famed professor, a wealthy benefactor, or a Midwestern explorer. All I know is that in the fall of 1997, I began calling Dayton Hall home, at least for those next nine months. Three blocky stories tall, Dayton sat just off Snelling Avenue on the east side of McAllister College campus. Many first-year memories were set against the backdrop of those white cinder block walls, like the second night of college when Eric, a first-year from South Dakota High School with a graduating class of 12, sprinted down the hallway, one hand over his mouth, hoping, though ultimately failing, to reach the first stall. Or the dual-floor progressive party that featured a blue room dripping with Curacao and Picasso prints, and an overly bright tequila sunrise room, heavy enough on tequila to ensure that most did not see the sunrise the next morning. And then, of course, the ashtray. A room for smokers that always smelled like cigarettes and old beer, even on non-party days. Lengthy, profound conversations about identity, the universe, home, and beyond echoed off the hallways and dorm walls. And occasionally, we slept. My first wobbly steps into adult life occurred in that building, and my knees also shook three years later when I learned that dear old Dayton would be torn down in order to make room for a slick new student union. Much like a younger sibling whom in, upon whom insults are casually dropped, the men and women of Dayton had taken plenty of shots at our old blockhead home since moving out. She was an old building, not equipped with new box TVs or ethernet cables that represented the most advanced technology that 20th century would provide. Wi-Fi in the cloud would emerge years after our graduation date. Dayton Hall didn't have a workout center or an event room for dancing and other shenanigans, and we residents never missed a chance to commiserate about these shortcomings. But like a younger sibling in need, Dayton's pending destruction elicited instant defensiveness in me and her former residents. How dare they try to erase my home, my first year of adulthood, my own personal memory chamber. Since moving out, I'd occasionally strolled past old Dayton, reliving the deep or debaucherous times of my not-so-distant youth. When demolition day came, I gathered with dozens of others to watch the wrecking ball swing and the bricks tumble. As the steel crane rotated with a jerking motion, the cable swung back, wrecking ball dangling on the end. I whispered my goodbyes in the space between the backswing and collision, feeling my own sides contract as the ball thudded against Dayton's second floor. To my horror, several onlookers applauded and cheered as the first wound opened up. Like a horde of wine-soaked Romans, their cheers grew louder with each pummel of the ball. The bricks rolled down the outer facade, first in rivulets, then rushing in chunks and hunks. The cheers became more bloodthirsty as the spectators whipped themselves into a frenzy at the destruction of a structure that at one time had been some architect's pride and joy, some construction worker's mission, and certainly the home of thousands of students like myself. I roiled in silence, promising not to allow any tears to betray my stoic stance. Then the wrecking ball caught the top of the southeast roof, pulling down two walls of the corner room simultaneously. The interior stood naked like a student who forgot his keys after heading to the shower. The crowd cheered the wrecking ball's death destruction of two walls with one blow. As the radiator fell from one wall, a flash of red caught the jagged edge of the remaining floor. 
An old notebook rested on the broken floor, forgotten or hidden or lost behind the radiator years before. At the sight of the notebook, the crowd sucked back its roar. That dangling and exposed remnant reminded everyone of the life that once warmed the now demolished room. They could no longer cheer for the crunching of brick and tile, delighting in its destruction. The four walls once again became a room, a place where people, where people had slept, read, panicked, laughed, drank, and lived. The notebook waved life back into the building. It restored Dayton's connection to humanity, reminding us all that something more than a building was lost that day. After the carnage, I ambled over to the rubble and stole a brick. I thought it might help me hold on to those old memories. But walking back to my apartment, I dropped the brick on some sidewalk and brushed the white dust of Dayton from my hand. It was just concrete now, but my memories live on, housed in the Dayton of my mind. Thank you. While the espresso machine is going, I'll just kind of, ex uh, I just, I'd like to give a big thanks to Deb Runyon, who has perfect attendance for the St. Paul Almanac Festival. Um, we're going to be giving you a, a, a special prize uh, to be determined at some point. Um, and uh, an honorable mention to Steve in the back, who, who is the runner-up. Uh, so close. <coughs> Um, but seriously, thanks you guys for coming out and supporting us. It's, it's, it's great to see you guys at all the readings. Um, it's always great to see, uh, you know, people kind of travel around, uh, you know, with the series. Uh, as, as well as, you know, part of the point is to get to different neighborhoods and, and see f uh, people from the neighborhood as well. So um, I'll just give a big thanks right now for everyone for coming out today. All right, back to the reading. Janice Quick still treasures each agate she found at Phelan Lake during the 1950s. She leads cemetery art tours and local history hikes. Please welcome Janice. I've written a fair amount of local history pieces, but this is the first time that I've um, tried to write something that I really felt very emotional about. My story is called Little Myrtle. I never met Myrtle Lloyd, and I don't know much about her, but I want to remember her. I discovered her name while doing research for a history tour that I planned to conduct at Forest Lawn Cemetery. Her name had been entered in cramped handwriting on the first line of an 1890s register of interments. Myrtle Lloyd was the first person interred at Forest Lawn. The register holds scanned information Myrtle died of diphtheria in January 1893 at a house on Burr Street. She was only five years old. There was no mention of her parents. The county paid for the burial expenses. No stone marked little Myrtle's gravesite. No relatives were later buried near her. In her stead, I felt forlorn and forgotten. I silently vowed to learn more about Myrtle as a way to honor her short life and lonesome death. A search of public records revealed the absence of birth and death certificates for her. Birth certificates were not required in Minnesota until 1906, and death certificates were not instituted until 1908. 
Given her recorded age, she was born in 1887 or very early in 1888. Myrtle had probably been born at home. There was no birth record for her in the files of the city and county hospital. According to the interment register, Myrtle died in 1893, but no obituary appeared for her in either the St. Paul Pioneer Press or the St. Paul Daily News. Although the interment register indicates that she had died in a house on Burr Street, the 1890 St. Paul City directories list no Lloyd family on Burr Street. It isn't likely that Myrtle ever started school. There are no school records in her name. The United States Census of 1890 would have provided details regarding Myrtle and her parents or her guardians. But unfortunately, a fire in 1921 destroyed the census data for all households in Minnesota. I looked for little Myrtle, but I didn't find her. The one line I had found in the forest lawn register is the only evidence that she ever existed. I can't picture Myrtle's face. I never heard her voice or watched her play. But I think I remember her. Um, yeah, uh, thanks again to the St. Paul Almanac. And uh, with that, I'll introduce uh, Deb Runyon. It took Deb Runyon 43 years to heed the advice of her English teacher, proving it's never too late. Kudos to those special teachers in our lives. Please welcome Deb. Thank you. Kudos to those teachers. It is awesome. We have four community editors here today. And, and you guys, I can't tell you how awesome it is to sit 25 of us and get the stories the first day and then argue over them and question and talk about them and then see them in the book. But, but to hear them read in the author's voice is really something. So the piece I'm going to read from the book is on page 253. This is my Betty, my picture of my mother-in-law. She was 95 and a half years old when we lost her last July, 99 and a half. And she loved to read. And she, in her later years, would start reading the junk mail always, and the newspaper from top to bottom. And um, then she stopped reading. And I had almanacs, and I started reading to her, and she seemed to enjoy that. And I'd encourage her to read, and she'd say no. One day I left to go make supper, and I came back, and there she was. So I had to, the opportunity to snap a few photos. She read the same paragraph for three days to me. And of course, it wasn't about her husband and son, but she thought it was. I was um, able to let her know two weeks before she passed that we made it in the book. And she just gave me a big grin. Yay. So here we go with Betty. She sits swaddled in the seat beside me, her signature bow propped atop her silver head, asking why I didn't tell her. I take a deep breath and gently say, I didn't want to upset you. 
She pauses, looking at the world sauntering by as we drive down Snelling, her Snelling. It doesn't matter, the sleet of November slapping the windshield. What does she see out her window of 98 years? She turns to me and says, I don't think I'm upsettable. And then I wanted to read another piece I wrote, because David said we could at the other ones. And this one is called Treasures. Lying on the secret beach, tattooed with late March sun, you teach me your agate-finding techniques. Shovel a pile of rocks with your arms, with your feet to reach the wet under rock. To your right, always to your right, the sun helps them pop. We hear soft clinking of paper-thin ice, gentle Lake Superior laps kiss the shore. Songbirds flitter and dance, and the distant Titanic oarboat groans and maneuvers to dock. We spend hours in our quiet discourse, punctuated with exclamations of our discoveries. The parenthetical hovering silently is our mutual love of my boy, your man, our favorite treasure. And I, I just want to give a shout out to my boy whose birthday is today and he's stuck in Oregon surfing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, before we conclude, I just want to give a big thanks to Polly for letting us use your coffee cove here today. Thank you very much. Uh, we've had readings here for, uh, well, more years than I've been a part of it, so I'm not really sure, but I always, I love the feel of this place. I love coming here, and uh, um, it's really great to be here. So uh, please stick around. I have some more food and drink after the reading. By, uh, the books are for sale right there. Oh, <laughs> so Polly's and St. Paul Almanac have been partners for 11 years now since both of their inceptions. And congratulations on, uh, on 11 years. Here's for many more. I'll uh, drink to that next time my drink's a little stronger. It's a little early in the day yet. <clears throat> Our last writer of the e uh, afternoon, caught myself, is uh, Linda White. Linda White is a writer, reader, editor, reviewer, promoter, and instructor. Her writing has appeared in the St. Paul Almanac, Writer's Block, uh, MN Reads, and Book Riot. In 2013, she was a finalist on the Beyond, Impure, Beyond of the Pure Fellowship for Writers at Intermedia Arts, and she runs Bookmania. Please welcome Linda White. Thank you. And I want to thank Dave for inviting me today. I, was, I think I was a last-minute addition, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, I am super excited to be a part of the St. Paul Almanac series. I love the St. Paul Almanac, um, and I'm a new board member along with Deb, and we met last year when we were community editors. That's when I met Colleen and um, who else here? Oh, I knew Wendy before that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's such a great experience. If you get a chance to do it, by all means, 
put your hat in the ring and do it because hearing these stories from the author, like Deb said, you made me cry. <laughs> so that was awesome. Um, it's just so, it adds another layer, and it, but it's great to see them and, and see how they develop and stuff too. So, so yeah, yay St. Paul Almanac. And my piece is called Adventures in Midway Center. When I was a kid growing up in the Midway area of St. Paul, there was a strip center, one of the early shopping centers, called, of all things, Midway Center. It was anchored on one end by C.G. Murphy, a precursor to Target, with items in deep tables all along the front of the store. On the opposite side of the strip center was a monstrous edition of Montgomery Ward, four stories high. You could find anything there. We didn't shop at either of these much, but my mother did buy a lot of her clothes at a store in the middle of the L-shaped strip center called Learners. Apparently, Learners was the bastion of all things high fashion for the trendy lady of the 1970s. My mom bought a full-length blue faux fur coat there once. Yes, blue fur. It had a short nap on the body of the coat in a lighter blue, and then darker blue trim in a plush, long faux fur. The sleeves were almost bell sleeves in the fashion of the day, with great big cuffs in long blue fur. And the lapels were all the rage too. Wide, deep, long, and blue furry lapels. It was the height of cool. She used to take me to learners with her when she did her shopping. And really, is there anything more boring than watching someone else shop? Once I climbed into the middle of one of those circular clothes racks, I was about six or seven, and fell asleep. They turned the store upside down for me until I woke up and crawled out. I suppose I gave my mom quite a scare. It's true, my mom was very cool. She wore crocheted skirts and vests that she made herself and long, dangly earrings that were hidden in her long, dark hair. She died shortly after I fell asleep in that clothes rack, and I never did go into learners again, but I remember it so well. Just outside learners was a tiny little house surrounded by a chain-link fence. The house was used in the winter for Santa. I don't remember ever going there to actually see Santa, but I do recall spending a lot of time outside that fence, looking at the reindeer that inhabited that yard during December. I don't know if they were real reindeer or just regular deer. The last time I saw them, I was probably eight, but they sure did open up all kinds of flights of fancy in my little mind. Every year, I begged to go and see the reindeer. My brother remembers that we did climb on Santa's lap one year, but I have no recollection of that. I have continued to drive by Midway Center throughout my life, watching the changes on University Avenue. The old Chevy dealership where my dad bought his first new car, a lime green Impala. Gone now, moved out to the suburbs. The old drugstore right on the inside angle of the L at Midway Center, if you remember that one, it had a lunch counter, just like in the movies. If you walked out the back door of the drugstore and across the alley, you were in the giant Montgomery Ward. The beauty salon where my first stepmom cut off all my hair. And there was a bowling alley, too, underground, where my brother and I would hang out 
pretending we were playing the pinball games because we didn't have any money. What I wouldn't give now to have my mother bore me with her shopping. These, these, these things we don't treasure until we're older. Talk now is there's going to be a big soccer stadium put on that site, and they're going to get rid of the little Midway Center strip mall completely. I will always remember the little house with the reindeer and that long blue fur coat from Learners. It seems like things always have to change. At least we have these hazy things called memories that we can call on from time to time. Thank you. That's our reading for today, and that's our festival for the year. Um, I'd like to thank all of you who, are, who uh, came out to the readings uh, throughout, the, throughout the series, and all of you here today who uh, came out to this one. It's really great to see you guys here and to share this with you. Uh, it's really cool. Um, but finally, I want to give a big thanks to the writers uh, who, uh, who, who, out, uh, who uh, without whom, <laughs> I'll ask the, uh, the, the uh, more, <laughs> the, the grammarians about that later. Without them, we wouldn't have these books, we wouldn't have these readings, and, and we wouldn't have these uh, gatherings, which, which I, I really appreciate so much. And uh, so I wanted to thank all of you for, for sharing your stories with, uh, with the Almanac and for sharing your voices uh, personally with us here tonight. It's, it uh, means a lot to me and it means a lot to us. So thank you all very much for, for doing that. Uh, my name is David Stein. It's been a pleasure. To, it's been my privilege to be your host. Uh, thank you all again, and have a great afternoon. To hear more stories, learn more about Storymobile, and to find out where we'll be pedaling off to next, visit storymobile.org.